Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the state historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history, and sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman. Find out more at bowman.legal. I'm Walt Woodward. A lot of people don't know that the first American cookbook was printed way back in 1796, and not in Philadelphia or New York or Boston, but right here in Hartford, Connecticut, and for some very good reasons. Join co-host Brenda Miller and I as we interview Keith Stavely and Kathleen Fitzgerald, co-authors of the extraordinary new book, United Tastes, the making of the first American cookbook to find out why. Mmm. That's good. Mmm. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Wow. Hi, I'm Walt Woodward, and I have just eaten some of the best soft gingerbread I've ever had in my life. And I'm eating it in the Wallace Stevens Reading Room at Hartford Public Library with my co-host on this episode, Brenda Miller. Sitting in the middle of the table in front of us is, is a plate of Rice Krispies colored gingerbread. And across from me are Keith and Kathy Stavely, who have written an amazing book about the first American cookbook. It's called, their book is called United Taste, The Making of the First American Cookbook. And uh, it is a book about a cookbook and it is so much more. Kathy and Keith, so nice to have you here. You didn't even have to bring food for us to be happy to have you here, but we are glad you did. Thank well, you so much. It's a pleasure to be thanks, here, Walt thanks, and Walt. Brenda. It's Thank a you pleasure. so much for having us. There is so much to talk about, about this, what I think is an amazing book. But let's start with the book you're writing about. If you could, just describe American Cookery. That's the title of it, right? Describe the physical book for us. What did it look like? Well, American Cookery is a very small book. Um, it was uh, small for its time, even. Um, in its first edition, there were two editions, two early editions, both in 1796. And its first edition um, was under 50 pages, and its second edition just a little over 60. So tiny little kind of pamphlet-sized book. Um, not really that much longer, because it was the second edition was smaller in physical dimensions than okay. yeah. the first edition. Yeah. Uh, and a few more recipes, but not that many. And under 200 recipes in the book, mm -hmm. um, but a very popular book. It is the first book um, with uh, proclaiming boldly the title American Cookery. So it's really the so first book. So there had book never been an American cookbook before this was published. There had not. There had been reprints of British books. Uh, the first one was in 1742, a reprint of E. Smith's *The Complete Housewife*, which was popular uh, down down in uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. But this was the first time that an American author and an American publisher brought out a book mm -hmm. of American uh, cuisine, and, and it, it, was, it was published right here in Hartford, wasn't it? Was. It? It was. The very the first edition was published right here in Hartford, yes, in the spring of 1796. Um, and uh, uh, one of the intriguing things about it is that a second edition was published only a few months later, about six months later, in a different place. 
uh, a second revi that was a revised edition where there were some recipes um, that were taken out that had been in the first edition and there were some others that were added. Uh, and it was also, since it was a different place, obviously it was also a different printer. So do you consider those two first editions, that the second one was in Albany, right? Albany, yes. So it is, is it the Hartford first edition and the Albany first edition or the first and the second edition or how do you? It's the Albany, we, we talk of the Albany edition as the second edition. Um, uh, and I think people who've looked at it generally do that. Um, um, there were there were there were printings of the uh, later printings of the first edition, the Hartford edition, that included an errata page because the author Amelia Simmons, or and we'll get into this, or someone sure. who yeah. who was writing as Amelia Simmons felt there had been errors in the, uh, especially in some of the ingredients in the recipes. So there had been. Um, you know, revisions, or at least, at le not revisions of the first edition, but an errata page alerting readers that, you know, they might want to change some of the uh, ingredients in um, cooking the recipes. But then the second edition was really a second edition with a publisher who was, um, uh, they were actually uh, the Webster's of Albany Brothers. They were protégés of the publisher, the Hartford publisher, Hudson and Goodwin. They Hudson had, and Goodwin was the first publisher of the first book. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Hartford's uh, best known publishers mm -hmm. of the late 18th century. Excellent. And they were the proprietors at that time of the Connecticut Current, Connecticut which, Current, which so. is now the Hartford Current. And, is and the oldest continuous right. publishing newspaper as, in America. As, Hopefully as they, as for they don't at least mind, a few more years. Yes. Right? As, as they don't mind saying, on, uh, uh, which is Wonderful. Well, and we're awfully proud of it in Hartford too. It's kind of sure. nice. Yes, it's nice. Uh, and historians love it. It's such a great resource. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. now, um, oh, I'm sorry. Go I was going to jump in, but in, in the beginning part of your book, you do discuss British cookbooks. Can you go into that a little bit? How you talk about um, what is the British cookbook? How what is that? Can you explain? Sure. Um, you know, we felt when we were um, beginning to work on. American cookery that we needed to really approach American cookery from a lot of angles and one was the angle of where did the idea of this cookbook come from you know what's the form of a cookbook what's the content of a cookbook what kinds of recipes go into a cookbook and American cookery is very much in the British mode uh, it's still only 1796 you know we're not that many decades away from independence and um, Americans thought and uh, culturally kind of were in the atmosphere of, of British things British and that included British cookbooks. Um, so we do go into um, a, a good deal about the culinary, the British culinary history. Can I just interject? Um, one and a, a very specific reason why it was necessary to look into this pretty closely is that um, when scholars began to look at this book, which was about um, 50 years ago, 50, 60 years ago, um, it was pretty, very quickly determined that many of the recipes, despite the title American Cookery, they figured out pretty quickly that many of the recipes in the book were actually either straight out copied from or else very, it's very similar to types of recipes that were found in British cookbooks. And we looked at more closely at this and found that actually well over half, almost three quarters of the contents of the two these two first and second editions are have that very close connection to the British cooking tradition. So, 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 so we really had to you know find out 
a lot about you know. So what it these almost begs were. the question: How American is American? <laughs> yes. Right. Well, well it, it does. It does. Um, but you know, uh, the way in which it's it's American is also uh, we think the way in which it's British. And um, to to get to this question of what a British cookbook was like. Um, in, this, in the course of the 18th century, um, the publishing world had opened up to publishing things other than kind of religious books. And among those, in Britain especially, was the rise of the female author of a cookbook. And it was very much uh, kind of as opposed to the French tradition, where there weren't as many uh, cookbooks published, but the famous chefs and cooks were male. But in Britain, the famous names of the 18th century were Hannah Glass and Elizabeth Raffold, um, E. Smith, whom we know was a woman. Um, and so th the tradition in Britain was for women who had been themselves cooks or um, housekeepers in, in estates to publish books. Um, often they had shops, they had food shops, fancy food shops. And so American cookery is very much in that tradition of the British cookbook where housewives or the housewifely tradition where women's recipes or and servants. women's or servants where they published the uh, the books and they led the uh, the advances really in the in in culinary writing and in cuisine in Britain. So that's kind of the background for why we give so much detail about British well, cookbooks. And, and your, your study of, of yeah. who the author is is just fascinating. I want to save that to the end, the way you did in your book, because it's a, it, it's a great story in and of itself. The, um, great. But so you have this certainly heavily British-influenced cookbook that comes out in 1796, which is a really important time in the early Republic of America and, and uh, in Connecticut itself. And, and it almost makes sense that it's published in Connecticut, right? Because Connecticut is one of these states that has almost a, a proclivity for asserting American uniqueness with a British cultural identity, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Um, we were, uh, w one of the questions that we, one of the things that intrigued us when we were s deciding to undertake this project was, uh, besides um, uh, the author, the thing about the author and the fact that she's, they stressed that she, she's an orphan, um, was, why, is American cookery, why wasn't it published in Philadelphia or New York, those were the places that were, you know, associated with this nationhood of this place. Or if it was going to be from New England, why wasn't why, why wasn't it Boston? But here it was from Parkville. Well, why is that? Um, and probably one of the um, one of the early discoveries that we made in our research um, was that the publisher Hudson and Goodwin had been publishing all of these other efforts at asserting Americanism for the past decade, uh, in, including um, poetry by these young, these young men from Yale that literary historians call the Connecticut wits, uh, people like Joel Barlow, Timothy Dwight, and uh, uh, John Trumbull, um, uh, David Humphreys, um, but it, perhaps even more closely, more important, uh, People, uh, an author who had even more success was a, a friend of Barlow's, a classmate of his named Noah Webster, 
people will recognize the name Webster in connection with Webster's dictionaries, mm -hmm. of course. And um, he uh, had was de determined to write a book that would try to Americanize, or write books that would Americanize the English language, so it would become an American language. And he had published in 1783 by Hudson and Goodwin um, a book with the very ponderous title that the president of Yale, when Ezra Stiles had insisted he used, called the Grammatical Institute of the English Language. Uh, but goodness. as the book became <laughs> successful, um, people, you know, who have a knack for, you know, genius for this kind of thing, changed the name happily to Webster's Blueback Speller. And which is how it's still known. That's today, how it's right? still it known. Was, and it we, was we have a big mall, uh, kind of a mall in West Hartford called Blueback Square. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Right. Oh, I would wonderful. Hope that you'd go yeah. to West Hartford, maybe the Noah Webster House for a book talk. Oh, oh yes, oh, actually, yeah. we, we would feel right at home there. Yeah, we heard your podcast yeah. about their beer. Oh yeah, festival. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was a great day. Yes. That was wonderful. Yeah. Now, just to wet your whistle, we do have Noah Webster's personal pamphlet collection here in our special collections, which is really oh, quite amazing. Sure. We have 91 wow. volumes of pamphlets. Oh, so goodness. if you ever wow. want to explore that which gave him you know, the you know, material to go out there and create this sure. language, this piece, this Webster. That's yeah, great. Oh, how It's in the pamphlets. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry? Yeah. Oh, that's okay. You, you know, one of the... In a way, I found the title of this book both informative and a little misleading, because if you're someone who loves cooking, this is a great book. It's a great history of a cookbook. It's not a cookbook, I should hasten to add, although you have many, many recipes in it, but it's a beautiful history of America's first cookbook. But at the same time, it's, it's absolutely an astonishing history of Connecticut in this period of the early republic. I, as state historian, I found that the hidden gem inside this book, that in order to understand American cookery, you have contextualized it against the entire play of what's going on in Connecticut well, in this period. Well, that's really a, an honor to have you say that, um, as not only the state historian, but as the author of a beautiful book about 17th century Connecticut. Um, but um, I think we like each other. This is great. No <laughs> question. Um, we really do. <laughs> well, it, but it, it was it, it became necessary once we began discovering that there was this coherent effort with um, Noah Webster, these Connecticut wits, and Hudson and Goodwin at the center of it to kind of combine with the fact that they did really think that um, Connecticut was superior in its social structure and its culture to just about any place uh, else in, in the new country, to the great irritation of people, say, in Massachusetts. Um, sure. But, um, well, Connecticut is part of this New England federalist milieu, but one of the things that, that you know, as historians, and I'm, I'm getting a little down in the weeds here, but historians have almost always characterized this tremendous conflict that went on in this time period between the Jeffersonian Republicans and the New England Federalists as a South-North conflict and an agrarian vision of America versus a more uh, commercial, in industrializing vision of America. And yet you find that 
Connecticut had its own special kind of agrarian lifestyle it wanted to advance as the model for the nation. Absolutely. Right? Um, would you want to comment yeah, on Yeah, I mean, we just using the title page of American Cookery, we felt was a, a way into what we would need to research. And obviously, um, if you're researching food, you're researching um, the, the source of food. You know, why, why, would, um, why would it seem that um, you could um, sell a book about cookery, um, what kinds of food were available to people uh, to cook? Um, so that leads you to think what kinds of foods are being grown and what kinds of foods are being marketed and what is the kind of even the infrastructure for transportation to get foods to market. Um, and it does, it did open up for us the idea that a book located uh, in Connecticut, originating in Connecticut, in Hartford, we had to look at the, um, the, the agricultural and even the fishing and the commercial uh, world in which that book is produced because those things at that time not you know not a global network of, of uh, moving of commodities that world at that time was really important to understanding it was pretty much a locavore movement of necessity of necessity right? yeah. yes yeah. that's right with imported spices and rum and sugars yes and, yes yeah. and there is the connection to both commerce um, and agriculture and and in many of the recipes you can actually see the connection between commerce and local agriculture. You've got local materials being turned into food, but they are often enhanced with spices that come from the West Indies or with uh, sugar and molasses that come from the West Indies, or they're being enhanced with Wine. um, a lot of the recipes, wines yeah. from Madeira. And you know, that Connecticut had a, a very sprightly West Indian trade in this period. Yes, so absolutely. Yes. So they had yes. access to these. As a matter of fact, on the um, page of the Connecticut Current, um, where the copyright notice was printed for American cookery in May of 1796, page three. <laughs> we want to really get in the weeds. Um, <laughs> we happen um, to know. <laughs> uh, we did exactly. You know, we if know you look at the advertisements on that page, uh, among the, the all the kind of surprise, if you don't know much about the consumer. I, by the way, found that just a wonderful piece of historical analysis that you say, okay, the copyright's on this page, now let's look at what else what is else on it. Is and it really, and, yeah. really just fleshes out. It's, yes. as, it's as though yeah. the whoever laid out the paper was anticipating someone wanting to write a book about it 200 years later because it has just about every aspect of um, what you would need to live the kind of life that would make you want to use a cookbook like this, including these, what we were just talking about, these advertisements for these foods and especially the spices that were coming in, in maritime commerce. Um, so it wasn't hard to find evidence of um, that there were the, the resources for people to use a book like this were, were available in, in Connecticut. Um, now the, the recipes are a mix, aren't they? There are recipes that are kind of on the luxurious end, and a few recipes that are on the common, plain, ordinary end, and kind of a gravitation toward towards the, toward the middle. Toward the middle, and that's part of your argument about what this Connecticut model for America is about, right? Indeed, it is. Um, uh, you were talking about the standard distinction between the Federalists being uh, more commercial and industrial, and the Jeffersonians 
uh, advocating for agriculture, and we did find that not only was Connecticut a place where ag agriculture was at the center of uh, the way of life, um, but that these Connecticut wits and these intellectuals and leading citizens uh, celebrated this agrarian way of life. I, they perhaps somewhat uh, exaggerated how trouble-free it was. Uh, they, they certainly did that, but nevertheless, that was their that was their vision. That was their ideology, um, and. Uh, they, although they believed that there should remain, which was, of course, they shared with all Federalists, that there should, there should be some sort of social hierarchy in this new country, uh, they allowed for, they, they, they did think that the, the sort of majority would be able to make it towards the middle. And there wouldn't yeah. be the kind of class stratification you'd find in no. Britain or maybe even in Boston social, social no, they, circles? No, they, they thought that they, thought they, 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 that they would kind of tone that down, take the sharp edges off it. Um, and uh, we do find that with the way that these recipes are configured, um, uh, that it kind of reflects this kind of celebration of, if you want to talk about the sort of longer range of of American history, the, you know, you can see the kind of formation of the middle class mm -hmm. uh, in in the United and, States. And yet, there is. You, you talk a lot about refinement as a goal and an aspiration, and that the the cookbook itself is sort of a guidebook or a, or a way for people to aspire to refinement. Some of the recipes are, you know, if you're if you're trying to hold a nice dinner and show that you have these aspects of living a refined life, you've got those, it, you, you've got something for everybody. Yes, right? and it, it, for, we were trying to envision who the book was for. Um, and, you know, as Keith has been saying, um, it, it may not have been a reality for everyone, but the, the aspiration that, um, that the, basically the Connecticut elite had for the society, which was being, um, promulgated in their own writings, but also in what they were supporting, being written and being thought about. Um, the aspiration was for the average person to come up to the level of a refined, civilized, but somewhat restrained in luxury, um, middle class. And um, so the recipes reflect in the number of recipes that are for uh, what we would call, what we call in the book, prosperous dining. You know, something that reflects your prosperity, that's very nice, that is refined and genteel, but isn't overly uh, elaborate showy and, and showy. Yes. You know, I have to say, there was a point when, in this book where you were describing Connecticut. Forgive me, but I went back to Tolkien, and I thought, my God, it's like you're describing the hobbits. You know, and, you know what I mean? Now, that sense of refinement, the pipe after the How many the times meal, have the, I felt like I lived in Middle the, Earth? Yeah, <laughs> Middle Earth. And, and, well, um, that, you know, if, not yeah, to interrupt, sure. but that resonates back with what Walt said earlier about that kind of British uh, exactly. tone of Connecticut's celebration of itself. I mean, Tolkien was certainly modeling that on yeah on an Definitely. idealized idea of English rural life. Um, so. so this, this you say in the book, and I'm going to paraphrase it, that the, that the whole goal of refinement is to reflect 
that you have taste and kind of uh, to, to show that you have genteel manners and deportment, but that it's effortless. You never show the art of it. That refinement is really the effortless, effortless presentation of good manners or good breeding or whatever the people who had it would call it. How does that, how does that fit with the cookbook? Oh, that's a good question. You know, we do, we do talk a lot about that, and, and um, one of the uh, kind of one of the aspects of it that we discuss um, in in our book is that it was um, it was it was a struggle to seem effortless. Um, that is not something that if you're not kind of raised in an upper middle class environment uh, doesn't necessarily come to you naturally, and um, there are some actually very touching. Uh, stories about people trying to aspire to gentility. It was absolutely a cultural norm that people were aspiring to seem less rustic, less crude. Um, they were reading things about manners. They were reading things about, um, uh, you know, how to how to conduct a dinner party or a tea. Tea mm -hmm. was was also in the tea ceremony, and you know, uh, was becoming very popular. And they were they were feeling the need to. Um, to learn the customs of gentility and to then practice them. Um, and here uh, comes a cookbook, which is very much in the style of British cookbooks, but is doing this thing for Americans of letting them learn how to be effortlessly genteel in the, um, in the kitchen and in the dining room. But mm -hmm. also, we don't directly make this connection. We do have a... Um, uh, we, we do have a um, quotation from uh, uh, one source about a, a, a skewer that um, the, the, the writer that we got this from says it was clearly, it was, was made in Connecticut, a silver skewer in around 1790. And, and uh, the, the, the writer that we, the, our source says, clearly it was designed to make the whole operation of having a nice dinner party look effortless the sort of slim lines and everything of it. And uh, the cookbook itself, of course, involves a lot of effort to make these dishes. Um, however, uh, one development in house design for those who could afford it uh, in the course of the 18th century was to make sure that the kitchen was a separate room and to the development of dining rooms as a separate place where so all the work could go yeah, on the in work there. was out of sight. Yeah. yeah. So that never that, let them see you sweat. That would be a lot of that would be the you know and and anyone that you know had the resources and was using American cookery or any other cookbook, but this is the one that we're focusing on would would hope to at some at least some point get into the position where they would be able to have that arrangement where the the the, the effort was out of sight and they would be making these dishes and they would be brought to this. You know, I, I really thought a lot about the effortlessness and why that was so important. But as you're describing that, I'm thinking of, you know, when, when we have a dinner party or something, you're in the kitchen, you're getting everything ready, and the doorbell's going to ring in five minutes, and you go like crazy, and then people come, and you're like, hi. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so that becomes effortless when you open the door, yeah, right? that's the custom. Yeah, that's that's, 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 that, that's yeah. a custom from that tradition that we still observe. Now, can I ask, I mean, at one point, I think you put in there that if you were to purchase the book, you said it would be about $3.50 in our money. 
Was this a book that was throughout? You know, did it do well in the first printing? Can you give us some sense of how readily it went into people's homes? And very popular? That's a great question. Yeah. Um, it was it was an inexpensive book, yeah. um, which um, was we think a deliberate strategy to get it into the hands of these people we're talking about. I could just um, interject. We had we did find one advertisement um, from New Hampshire actually in uh, about ten years after uh, the book was published, which had prices for several cookbooks, uh, several of the competing cookbooks, which are all the others were all English cookbooks. All of them were. A lot more expensive. Even the cheapest was more than twice as. So this was yeah. really this was designed, really designed to be for they knew for their target audience. Yes, and it was absolutely you know the, some of these um, British you know either imports or reprints could be up to what would be twenty eight dollars mm -hmm. today. So here's this slim little volume, but it's going to get you there. It's it, it really has a it's uh, really a carefully selected number of recipes that are going to allow you to present yourself in this effort. And you really locate the publication of this book, both because of Hudson and Goodwin, the Federalist Publishers, the Connecticut Wits. This is squarely in this Federalist project to present Connecticut as a model for America. In fact, you talk about it as the Connecticut way, right? Yes, yes. That, uh, yeah. Well, we, we, we rely a lot on um, uh, one of the major sources we use in that is Timothy Dwight, um, who uh, was president of Yale at this time um, and um, became increasingly influential throughout this period, so much so that those who weren't so happy with that, called him old Pope Dwight. Um, <laughs> but, I imagine um, he didn't mind it. <laughs> <laughs> probably not. But um, he, um, he talks a lot about this kind of model, especially in his later, or the book that was published later, it was written kind of all through the time he was, he was president of Yale, Travels in New England and New York, um, where he, um, he constantly is talking about this kind of combination of institutions that Connecticut, he says, are especially prevalent in Connecticut villages where there are churches and schools and houses are nicely positioned, they're nicely, they're not, they're nicely designed for each household and then they're well positioned in relation to each other. And uh, it's all designed to facilitate you know, civilized conversation this is an aspect of this refinement thing that we're talking about. Um, and uh, kind of it all sums up to say that um, uh, it all, this all conduces to having people that have, a, as he puts it, at, at a minimum, at least some degree of refinement. He actually uses those words. And at the same time, the people at the top, um, many scholars have said that they made an effort to kind of not strut their stuff too much to try to keep themselves kind of to, a little to bit restrain restrain their, their the fact that they were at the top to be so somewhat approachable right yeah. yeah and this was another way in which there was this meeting um, towards the middle um, well they they really they 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 really saw their their mission as forming a society mm -hmm. I mean this was um, you know an 
clear idea that we need to be Americans, not just politically, not just in our uh, political institutions, but culturally. We need to be something different. And they saw the failings, as they, as, as they would have said, um, in Britain of, of, of overly extravagant, you know, overly luxurious. Or the um, French Revolution. Well, well yeah, or, and yeah, there, there were French failings society. in America, too. There was Shays' Rebellion in Massachusetts and the Whiskey Rebellion in Pennsylvania. All of these kind of destabilizing mm -hmm. uh, 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 little rebellions happening in the early republic in which Connecticut says, right. wait a minute, yeah. you want a model right. for what you ought to be doing. We don't have those kinds of mm -hmm. things we, here. We, we didn't know. even have to change our constitution or anything. Really? Uh, we already had it all set up. In fact, uh, people don't know this about Noah Webster, as not, not as widely known about him, but besides his um, uh, efforts to Americanize the language, he published a pamphlet just in 1785, having first published it in serial form in the current the year before, called uh, po Policy of, no, that was, that was the article, Policy of Connecticut. I forget the title of the pamphlet. But anyway, it was basically an argument for what, a short argument for what became two years later the federal constitution. Uh, James Madison um, later even said that his pamphlet helped to move things towards one that. of the stimuli yeah and he, he says in the course of this pamphlet that the form of the Connecticut government is the most perfect on earth well and so if you if you want to see a physical example of that attitude you walk to that window right over there and you look to the right and you'll see the 1796 bullfinch old state house yeah which was built exactly as an example of this kind of federalist stability in a time of, so of unrest. Absolutely, it, yes. absolutely. Now, so. one of, the, one of the, the fascinating things you do with this, you do so many neat things in this book, <laughs> but the, the publication history, you map out where this book was published and, and you know, kind of how it spread. And you trace that back to people leaving Connecticut and taking the cookbook and the culture with them, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, we, we, we include a map that um, we had a wonderful map maker, maker help us design because um, in part, um, in answer to um, earlier uh, food historians' uh, discussion of American cookery, people are you know, trying to get their, their hands you know, around what um, what the book is and where it originated and what its intention was. Um, and Karen Hess, an earlier food historian, felt that the book originated, or the, or the, or the, the, uh, the author, the author yeah. rather, uh, came from New York. And we're trying to indicate that, no, the book is, is really very much a Connecticut Federalist project, but you can see its path uh, geographically physically, its path taking the same route north and west that migrants out of the state would have taken at this time. So we, we kind of want to show that the book followed um, or led, uh, as the case may be, uh, this, this effort to settle regions with the same kind of culture as Connecticut. So it goes up into um, New Hampshire and Vermont, and then it goes over into New York, and finally you find you know, the, the farthest west copy is in Zanesville, Zanes Ohio. Zanesville, Ohio, right. And unfortunately, that 
Zanesville is not in the Western Reserve, which is the main right. Connecticut area, so that doesn't. But there were still Connecticut outmigrants who went to Zanesville. Yes, so and, 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 and the it, printer was the son of, of a New England person, a fact, in fact, a Revolutionary War hero, uh, the printer of that edition of American Cookery. So it, it was a New England missionary effort in, in that little pocket of non-Connecticut Ohio. But, um, but we, do, we do make an argument that it wasn't only that the people were leaving Connecticut and going to these areas, but that there were um, efforts by the Connecticut powers that be to make sure that it would be the culture and the society would go with them, including missionaries that the, the Connecticut um, church establishment, they set up a missionary organization. Sure. Um, and when we looked at the features of these later printings of, of American cookery, we were struck by the fact that they were all, even though the first two editions are small, these later ones are even smaller. They're even smaller in height. Awesome. And, and then we so they're like those missionary tracks, yes. right? They're, they're trying to make them and, and, portable. And, and you know, we there's plenty of scholarship that talks about how important peddlers were mm -hmm. to um, introducing uh, people in all these new regions to the world of consumer culture and uh, ethic of refinement and all of these things. And it's, it struck us that probably um, it wasn't out of the minds of these printers that if they made the book even smaller, it would be easier for peddlers to take it out into these districts and have it serve that purpose. It would fit in the peddler's pack. Yeah. So, so, so we get to we get to the big unasked question, oh good. Yeah. We're gonna which get is, to the which is American cookery was written. It says on the title page, it was authored by Amelia Simmons. And that's just provoked all sorts of issues, hasn't it? So tell us about your quest to find who Amelia it Simmons was. It certainly was a good bit of detective work. I yes, mean, yeah. Was a good, good chapter there, chapter eight. <laughs> Thank you, it was fun to do. We had fun with um, it. When we, uh, I'll start by saying that about this, that when we decided to investigate American cookery. We mentioned that the, the food was really good. We cooked it, mm -hmm. um, and we liked it a lot. Um, but another really interesting uh, kind of challenge that we wanted, that made us want to take on the book, um, was the title page where Amelia Simmons's name is given. And who is this Amelia Simmons? If she's written the first American cookbook, she's a famous woman in American history. Um, also on the title page, um, there's the tagline, an American Orphan, which is unusual. Mm -hmm. um, so that was intriguing indeed. Um, historians have, for decades now, uh, tried to search for Amelia Simmons and found no genealogical uh, record of her existence. Um, but we have more up-to-date uh, you know, Ancestry.com, Yes, right? we, have we have internet. So. Um, we uh, replicated the search, we did the digital search, we did searching of print sources. Um, and indeed, there is, there is no uh, external evidence of genealogical evidence of Amelia Simmons's existence. Um, the evidence we have is the front matter of the book, what she says about herself, kind of uh, intriguing, tantalizing tidbits about 
orphanhood, um, and in that she's identified herself on the title page as an orphan, uh, we pursued a great deal of the idea of what an orphan was in the late 18th century, especially a female orphan. Um, you know, and then the other thing really about Amelia Simmons is, well, if there's no evidence of her existence, was she a pseudonym? Was she somebody else? Because was Orphan she, is a kind of special publication category in this time, isn't it? Yes, orphan, uh, Orphanhood um, is, and, and we talk a lot about this in the book, um, to understand the book, American Cookery, you have to understand the time. So what did, what, what did it mean to the readers of the time, looking at a book, to say it's by an American orphan? Um, we felt that the, the kind of orphan trope that was very popular in fiction of the time related to and somehow and in some way American cookery was kind of in dialogue with the fiction of the time and now the audience would be the same too it would be women it would be housewives and they were often the readers of fiction um, so we looked at novels of the 18th century that had orphanhood as a theme there were many they were very popular in America as they were in Britain um, and the the, the kind of crux of the matter is what was the drama of orphanhood was how did the orphan remain as a female orphan we're talking about now, how did the orphan remain virtuous? Mm -hmm. And what that means is how did she protect her chastity? How did she remain chaste? Um, and this was, you know, big subject of the time. And in fact, in the, in the uh, prefaces to the first two editions of American Cookery, um, Amelia Simmons, or someone writing under that name, also talks a lot about orphanhood mm -hmm. and the trials and tribulations of orphans and how females need to learn to cook if they are orphans because um, they're going to need to find a way to uh, support themselves so they won't be victimized by, uh, need, need to be under the uh, you know. But there's some of the language in, towards the end of the first preface especially is clearly referring to these conventions about uh, the, the um, fragility of the, or the dangers to the chastity of female orphans. Sure. So um, does that align yeah. with this Federalist project somehow? Uh, not perfectly. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, very imperfectly. Um, I mean, I think the way we put it at one point is that this um, federalist ideal of this kind of everyone being happy in the middle um, is pr pr sounds pretty nice, but if you're off to the side or underneath that and don't see any much of a way to get into it, um, it doesn't look that great. Sure. Well, And, and so th this is what makes the whole thing even more intriguing is that Somehow or other, by some means, this little book reaches out and incorporates into its presentation this problem with the very vision that it mainly is presenting. This thing off this little dark spot, this little, this little corner that's not fitting in quite right. So shall uh, we conclude that Amelia Simmons was an orphan? It's, I, it's, you know, we, we, we say in our book that um, it's possible. She may have been, we find evidence for one woman who's, uh, you know, kind of fits the profile. She, um, the evidence that we have is that, uh, is really a death, is basically a death notice that she died um, in, at New York uh, right around in November of 
1796, right around the time of the second edition, right after the second edition that's, in that's Albany. Amelia Simons. Her, but her right. name is Amelia uh, yeah. Simons. But she may have been, um, you know, it would be possible, likely, that someone would add an M and kind of make a pseudonym of Amelia and she Simons was, and to she, Simmons. Sorry, but she, yep. she was, um, uh, she, in, in, a, in, in a, you could say in a very attenuated technical sense, according to the definitions of orphanhood at that time, that she was an orphan in that there is genealogical evidence about her. Um, she's from Wyndham. Her um, parents divorced when she was 22. Uh, and technically, in the 18th century, legally, the loss of, the, and the reason for the divorce was desertion. Legally, the loss of a father is what made you an orphan. So, I mean, of course, she was a grown woman by that time, but when, if, if they were, if, if uh, someone knew this, if this was Amelia Simons, was the one who was presented as Amelia Simmons in, in American cookery, and someone knew it, that. It would and if be they were good for sales to bill her uh, as an orphan, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that, that, would, that, was the, that was the main reason. But they also could claim, if anyone found this out and challenged them, that, well, you know, she's an orphan. You know, she doesn't yeah. have a father. But, yeah. but also, to get into print at that time um, often required collaboration. And if you had these Connecticut Federalist elites, who for whom Amelia Simons cooked, perhaps in households mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. in Hartford, and they knew she was a good cook and she had a great collection of recipes, and they wanted to bring her into print, um, they would have worked with her. And here is a way to show that the Fed Federalist project can even encompass women, and it can encompass women. Um, who have a distinct social disadvantage as orphans. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's a selling point for highly the book. Relatable, highly relatable. Highly relatable the for the public. Yeah. Yes. Right. Really. Right. Genius. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yes. and, you know, and you, you, um, you unpack this collaborate, what, what I think you conclude was a collaborative production enterprise in really mm -hmm. wonderful ways. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's another aspect of these prefaces, these prefaces to these editions and also this errata page that we mentioned earlier to a later printing of the first edition, we do kind of say that even though they're very brief, they're just so full of interesting material that they're almost like a second book. Um, and another aspect of it, of course, is, is a public controversy with one, one collaborator is identified in the course of this controversy <coughs> because the author, Amelia Simon Simmons, whoever she was, says that she lacked an education uh, sufficient to prepare the work for the press and that she employed someone to help her and this person made all these mistakes that she's, that are, she's now stepping forward to correct. And she even goes farther and says, this person did this on purpose um, to hurt the sale of the book. Um, which which is, is really fascinating, isn't it? With a design to injure the sale of the book, and you know, and that's very nefarious. In the second edition, right? Yes, well, that's yeah. print, well, in the, it's in the, printed in, uh, the, in this or on the errata, errata page, oh. and then in the second edition, um, she, she partly excuses. She now calls this person the transcriber, which is what leads us to think that um, if there was a real person that wrote it she maybe could read but couldn't write. She mm -hmm. needed someone to write down what she might have dictated uh, up from the recipes. Um, 
but she she now says that the transcriber well maybe it was you know just ignorance or evil intention she doesn't let that go um, and she says not only were some of the recipes wrong but they inserted a whole section that I didn't want in there and that I know nothing about about, about shopping about shopping yeah. Yeah, marketing um, section uh, so in, in a way she's she's blowing up this controversy and actually what the the argument that we make is far from hurting the sale of the book um, if there was a transcriber that made these errors and caused this person to get mad at him and possibly other collaborators it helped the sale of the book um, as we know controversy sells uh, we know yeah. in our world yeah. and it did in theirs there was a Yes, controversy. Year, yeah. controversy sells is not a new idea, and publishers right. in 1796 knew it as well as we do. And uh, people may not know that uh, Common Sense, the famous pamphlet by Thomas Paine, uh, was embroiled in a controversy uh, 20 years before this in Philadelphia with the first, the first printer, uh, and you know they shot back and uh, um, I think Paine was I forget the details, but I think Paine was mad that. Uh, the printer came out with a second edition or another printing without his authorization, yeah. uh, and they shot back with names like reptile and rascal, you know, scumbag. <laughs> what they didn't use that, but yeah, and, rascal. And, and, Anybody uh, say fake puppy. news? Just yes. no. <laughs> no, but you know that same was idea. the idea. Yeah. But you and, know we. And, but anyway, yeah, sorry, and that yeah. was according to the historian who that we learned about this from. She thinks it increased sales of the book, at least in the area where this was raging. When we first started uh, really looking at American cookery, we, we had, you know, we cooked from it, we talked about it in earlier books that we'd written, but we started saying, well, wait a minute, the, you know, what is all of this stuff about orphanhood and orphans and trials and tribulations and a nefarious transcriber doing as a preface to a cookbook? It's a cookbook. I mean, if you were buying one today, you'd expect it to say something uh, you, you know, innocuous or sweet or nice about the recipes or the life of the cook, maybe yeah, a little Stewart bit. Yeah, Martha wouldn't put an attack on right. her, you know, the people that <laughs> prosecuted her. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> Probably uh, not, but uh, so it, well, it you She's know, the, the one around now that might do that. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, but it was clearly discordant in a cookbook, mm -hmm. and so we had to search for why was this acceptable or why was it used or why was it seen not only as acceptable but as possibly favorable something good for the book sure um you know it's it's a very our our first american cookbook has a lot of very intriguing mysterious elements it to it it does and i could see why yeah. you picked on this and i, I just, mean because yeah, i yeah. can see the excitement and the curiosities yeah. so so yeah. you don't write about this in the book but in fact if you will pass me the plate of oh, sure. soft gingerbread <laughs> I'm going to ask this question and then just relax and, and listen to your answer. You've cooked from the recipes, I don't know how many, but how hard is it? What do they taste like? Could, you know, could ordinary people do it now? How, yes. how does that work? There, there are, yes, you, could, you can do We've it. We've cooked about 13 of them so far. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're, and we're, we're keeping on with more. Um, you can absolutely cook them. Um, we. Um, uh, felt that, as we mentioned, when we started the book, we, when we were promoting an earlier book, 
we were choosing recipes from the 17th, uh, 18th, and 19th centuries, we were turning a lot to Amelia Simmons's recipes. And they're very good, and they're very cookable. Often they're for quantities that are larger than what we would cook now, but, um, but you can scale them down. Um, we've done that. And uh, for instance, we've cooked her two pumpkin pies. The, uh, the first one um, is very much what you would see on a Thanksgiving table today. It's, an, it's a single crust with a bottom crust pumpkin. She calls it pudding. Um, puddings in pastes were, were the name for kind of custard pies. She gives the first American pumpkin pie. Um, before that, there were pumpkin pies, but the British did a strange thing with pumpkin. They fried it. Um, and layered it with egg and in yeah, apple, apple and, 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 currants. and currants. So their idea of a pumpkin pie is not our idea of a pumpkin pie. Or yeah, wasn't and that, that, and that version um, was, was copied down in a manuscript cookbook as late as the, that was kind of a 17th century thing after pumpkins began to come into Britain. Um, but you find a, it copied into a manuscript cookbook in Boston in the middle of the 18th century. So it wasn't that long ago. That, so this was kind of an innovation. This it was. And the first, and the first, the, the first custardized pumpkin pie, as we know pumpkin pie, the American pumpkin pie, appears in American cookery. And so that's the kind of the, the one that we all know still. That is really, we, we cooked it. Um, and it's and served it for Thanksgiving, and our family had no idea what it was a, a 1796 idea. recipe. It seemed like anything you'd you'd serve today. Now, am I right that you put some of these recipes that you cooked on your website? Do you, yes. yes. Or you talk yes. about? Yes. Um, we have a blog where we where we and we 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 we, descri we describe how we made them in a, in our own average modern. So, if kitchen. people want to access that, where do they go? Um, staveleyandfitzgerald.com. <laughs> That's us. Yeah. Wow, it sounds like a law firm. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we do, we, do, we do blog. We kind of go into detail how we cook each one. Um, we also cook the, the other. She gives two pumpkin pie recipes. Now, the other one is what we think everyone should start cooking. We all know how to do the first one. But the second one has fallen out of favor, and it's just terrific. Um, it's a two-crust pumpkin pie. Um, it's made with, with puff, fancier crust. puff paste. Yeah, it's puff made paste. with the puff pastry that um, it, you know is more elaborate. And the filling, the custard, is um, sweetened with sugar rather than molasses. Mm. So it's a light, it's a light custard. Um, and with two crusts, it's really an interesting pie. And she even gives directions for using what uh, uh, a, it's called a jagger wheel, uh, a pastry design. Okay to cut it and, and decorate, decorate it. it on top. So, good so thing you brought good. cookies. I don't think I could I get know. through this interview without a snack. <laughs> well, can, I, can I ask yeah, a quick please. question? You know, because I'm fascinated by the process, you two working together. Did you pick chapters? I mean, do you have separate interests and it comes together really well? Is that how it works? Yeah. I mean, I could see you've got an MLS, so you know, I saw you diving into books of the time and, and titles. Yeah, How does it work? Yeah, in fact, it's in a fact, great question. It is a good question. And the, with all of our books, the way we, I, I, there are other, other authorial partnerships. I don't know how they do it, but we, yeah, we, we, we kind of assign each other or we, we agree on you'll draft this one, I'll draft that one. And then, but we all, we both, uh, carefully review uh, what the other has written. Um, it, sometimes there can be a few little 
disagreements in the course of that. Um, but they're but they're evened out over some nice pumpkin pie. So, okay. you know. Oh, yes. <laughs> Thrown at each other or actually? <laughs> no. <laughs> actually, even. Well, actually, it's a good thank book. You. Thank you. It's a wonderful book, and for for people who want to meet Keith and Kathy and hear their talk about the book, you'll be at Hartford Public Library, Hartford History Center. Free and open to the public. And for anyone interested in Connecticut history in the early national period, do not miss this book. It's called United Tastes, The Making of the First American Cookbook. Keith Stavely and Kathleen Fitzgerald it's really, it's a tour de force. Thank you, thank so, you much. so much thank for you coming. So much. Thank, thank you, thank, thank you, you Brenda. Indeed. Thanks, Walter. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Keith Stavely, Kathleen Fitzgerald, and Hartford Public Library's Hartford History Center. To hear more Grading the Nutmeg podcasts, subscribe on iTunes or at gradingthenutmeg.libsign.com. And for more great Connecticut history stories, read or subscribe to the magazine at connecticutexplored.org. This episode was sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman, helping the seriously injured and holding distracted drivers accountable. More at bowman.legal. This is Walt Woodward. Hope you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg. Thank you.